Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people with dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. J.L. Coban is a native New Yorker who started his stand-up comedy career in Washington, D.C. while going to law school at Georgetown. His first big break came in 2007 when he performed on The Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson. But J.L. has found many more fans and followers thanks to his uncanny impersonations, whether they're of people he's been told he looks like, which includes Barack Obama, Adam Sandler, or Dwayne The Rock Johnson, or by lampooning other comedians such as Louis C.K., J.B. Smoove, George Lopez, Gary Goldman, or Adam Carolla. JL's Corolla impersonation got the attention of Corolla himself, leading to multiple appearances on his top podcasts in recent years. Since 2016, JL has found his mockery mark in Donald Trump, releasing multiple videos and two Fireside Craps albums as Trump that have hit number one on the iTunes comedy charts. At the start of the COVID-19 shutdown in March 2020, JL released a video of Donald Trump versus God on Easter pay-per-view that went viral with more than 2.5 million views so far. JL caught up with me just prior to the 2020 elections to talk Trump, why he hasn't done a Biden impersonation, and his own long and winding career. So let's get to it! So JL, uh, it's been a while since we talked. It has been. Properly. Uh, yeah, my, you know, I, I've been largely irrelevant for most of my career, and I had hit new levels of irrelevancy. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, the, the COVID hit, and uh, my career was born anew. Yeah, the, uh, the, yeah, the coronavirus pandemic has weirdly created new opportunities for comedians who can take advantage of the technology. Right. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things. It's sort of, uh, I'm already a little, I'm grateful for sure for reaching obviously exponentially more people and being able to steer some of those people to other things besides two minute videos on Twitter. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, I'm already sort of wanting to exploit my new notoriety to actually do what I want to do, which is stand up comedy and, and other things as well. But stand up comedy is the, has been the goal for 17 years. So, so I want to talk to you about all 17 years, but, but last things first. <laughs> so we're talking the day after the vice presidential debate. Yes. Wanting to exploit that. How much work did you have to put into being on top of everything and being able to have like a, a Mike Pence video dropping after the debate? Well, the, the, the good thing is the, the Pence impression just involves facial expressions and sort of a very, uh, you know, evangelical Bob Ross sort of voice. <laughs> and uh, all, the only makeup involved was uh, throwing an inordinate amount of baby powder into my hair to make it look white. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully, like, whatever problem there is with Johnson & Johnson, I feel like there was just a, a lawsuit about their baby powder. So I may be developing some form of rare brain cancer uh, doing these Mike Pence impressions, but hopefully not. Um, I think that makes takes, the impression, I think that makes the impression truer. 
It, that's true. That's true. And in the spirit of Trump, just like he got COVID as a sacrificial lamb for his followers, I too, for my Twitter followers, am willing to risk bodily harm. Um, it doesn't take, you know, there, there are certain things. Trump is the easiest thing for me to do because I've probably logged 150 hours at this point as Trump between my podcasts and videos. But um, for Pence, I just sort of developed my own version. People like it. I don't know if it's I think it's fairly accurate, but, you know, just like Trump, I sort of know these quote unquote characters pretty well. So I watched the debate and was just ready. You know, it took me 10 minutes. I doused my hair in baby powder and then just did a sort of a a, a Pence. And and fortunately, there was so much in that debate. I mean, the fly alone was sort of an easy viral talking point. So at this point, um, I'm not tech savvy enough to sort of be one of these people like a Randy Rainbow or something where it's like I've got green screen skills and, uh, uh, you know, I can edit together. I'm not good at any of that stuff, but what I am good at is the voice and the sort of off the cuff writing. So I play to that. So the Pence thing was a very easy, long answer, as I always give, but uh, very easy to, to, to sort of turn around for me, just like I'm the like- Trump videos are pretty easy. How much does your experience with the law being in a, in a, an attorney come into play with being able to like take notes and be able to like cross, put like cross examinations into your impersonation? Oh, sure. Um, I think the legal background I've, I, I've said to people, and I've probably tweeted this where I say, you know, uh, being, <laughs> being Catholic, a history major and a, uh, and an attorney, uh, the Trump administration basically violates everything I've learned from cradle to now, um, both ethically, legally, historically. So I think it informs my uh, maybe hostility towards them. But a lot of the time I don't get to I've learned my lessons sort of I'd rather be uh, uh, a little less Dennis Millery in terms of my my reference points. Um, so it informs a little bit. Um, but maybe not as specific in terms of like targeting jokes and having certain lines that are, you know, so I, I think it informs me in general, but maybe not in, in sort of specifics. So you don't come at an impersonation like a prosecutor with that same mindset of making it, making the case for this character or character. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's hard to say. It's hard to say, like, I, I, sh- I can't say, oh, I definitely don't think that way. Cause obviously I sort of try to do a very, a holistic impersonation of, of some of the people I impersonate. So uh, I can't say that it's not at play, but I don't think it's consciously at play. I'm not sort of charting different things. And Trump is such a, a, a geyser of content um, that, you know, each day there's literally something just obvious and big that I just try to be a little more specific and nuanced about. Cause you know, every day it's just something huge. And I've noticed some people, and this is the balance I have to pick. Sometimes I like to do very specific things because I think that's the funniest thing. But for a lot of people, they want the obvious thing. Um, like when he did that um, many months ago, the injecting into the veins sort right. of thing, a lot of people were like, JL, can't wait to hear your take on this. And I go, the take is already done. He already did the take. That's, that's ridiculous. There is no take for me to have. I would just simply be sort of repeating And then I realized, you know, let me see, maybe I just need to once in a while, you know, not be a pretentious artist and just give the people, you know, give them McDonald's. It's not always a a, a French restaurant, a French four-star restaurant. Sometimes people want a happy meal. And of course it blew up when I did a little bit of a spin. I said, 
that was the video where I suggested, I think that, uh, you know, Fresca could be a cure. I didn't say, I don't even remember these things, but in other words, it blew up because people said, yes, that's exactly what we wanted. We, we wanted a happy meal and you gave us a delicious <laughs> happy meal. <laughs> As if that doesn't sound condescending to many of my fans. Like, do you want trashy food, you ignorant comedy swine? <laughs> but, but like you said, you know, this comes after 17 years of putting in the hard work and not necessarily seeing the results you would hope for. Right. My, my first, like I was, I was trying to think of my, my first earliest lingering memory of you involves kind of a weird... I mean, maybe it's not a weird show in 2020, but it was a weird show in maybe 2010 or so where I remember you were, you were doing a show and Gary Goldman was on the show and it was in Midtown, but it was in a bar and it was in the daylight and, and there were people on the sidewalk. And it was, oh, just, was that, was that on the far West side? Yeah. Oh, that was, a, yeah, that was a bar show. I was run. I was running a friend of a friend had just sort of started managing a bar that was pretty new. And I was like, I know I'll do what everybody else does when you're struggling to get booked. I'll book a show. And uh, so, yeah, it's, and that, that was such a great lesson in how comedy works. Like the first three weeks of that show, everybody's filling it in. We've got a listers. I was paying that, you know, paying out of my pocket just to mm -hmm. boost the show. And like eight, by eight weeks, it was just a, you know, it was basically just another glorified open mic. <laughs> <laughs> the show I the show I went to though, like it was still daylight. I guess it must have been in the summer. Yeah. And the windows of the the front windows of the bar were open, so it was like people who were walking by on the street would could stop and like Right. It, was, <laughs> it seemed like a hell gig, but in twenty twenty all gigs are hell gigs. So Yeah. It's we, it's it's, it's, it's a whole, the, the whole arc of a, you know, I, I always like to say the, the arc of a comedy career bends towards poverty. Um, but, you know, you take anything you can get because you go through different phases. And at that point in my career, it was still like any stage time, any chance to enter. It's still kind of like that. Any stage time, any chance to interact with people above your station in comedy is a good thing, even if it's not making you money. It's getting you contacts and it's getting you just some experience performing and, and, and rubbing elbows with other, uh, other comics who are maybe above you. So. Were, you were you still practicing law at that point? Uh, at that point, I had been laid off from my law firm in 2009. Um, okay. And I always tell people in job interviews, oh, nine, financial crisis, right? <laughs> and everybody goes, yeah, absolutely. And, I, and in truth, <laughs> it was like I was laid off like five months before they started doing the I was a, you're not that good at this layoff, which mm -hmm. came five months before the, the economy is in shambles layoffs. But I like to sort of group myself with the, uh, you know, great recession layoffs. Um, so I had money saved up and was just doing comedy at that point, trying to get road gigs and figuring. I figured I had about two to three years worth of money saved up. I was coming off a late night credit. So I thought two to three years of just doing nothing but comedy with my age and my, you know, decent trajectory as it seemed to my career, I thought, okay, by then I don't need to be worry about being broke because two to three years from where I'm at now, coming off a late night credit, relatively young, fit with some potential, I'll make it. I'll I'll be where I want to be in in two to three years. Um, so fast forward three years from there, I'm working part time in my mom's office doing clerical work. Uh, 
and then the next five years doing part-time legal work for uh, staffing agencies. Um, you know, and finally, uh, when I haven't done a single gig in 2020, I've made more money from comedy pursuits in 2020 than the entire preceding 16 years combined. So it's, in other words, I have no, and that's not meant as a brag. That's meant like I probably broke, finally broke even. Uh, if you do all the the computation of my entire career, I'm finally in the black after, after 17 years, thanks to this year. (laughs) I I heard you on another interview thinking that you thought for a while that you were jinxed. Did you really feel that? Or is that just a fun thing to say? It is, um, you know, asking, I feel like a, a Catholic that still goes to mass if he was totally joking about a jinx is tricky. I, I'm I'm 90% joking. Mm-hmm. And then there's that little corner of me going, did my mom make a deal? Like with, am I Rosemary's comic or something? Like there was a deal with the devil made before I was born. And then I, I've rattled off all these sort of joke stories. And I'm sure many comics could rattle off many jinxy stories that feel like your career is doomed. So I don't actually, of course, believe in some sort of occult uh, force against my success. But you start to think, well, I know I'm very good. I know I've put in the work. I know I've had all these little blips here and there. And yet it's never and it's still in a weird way hasn't fully happened for me um, in terms of, you know, I'm still searching for a manager, an agent, even after all the, you know, even after all the sort of notoriety uh, uh, that I've, that I've gotten this year. Um, It's just, it it feels like I've had mild successes followed by misfortune throughout, throughout my career. And I, and, and like I said, comics uh, are probably, you know, I think are fairly self-centered people because your act is, you know, you're constantly in your own thoughts as part of your uh, profession but um, yeah, I'm sure most pe- most comics have stories like this. But to me, it's obviously very personal, and you you get into a "woe is me" sort of uh, attitude when it comes to to your career. Well, so how did you how did you initially get that late late show with Craig Ferguson? Then, yeah, I uh, I sent out a mass uh, mailing of DVDs that I'd made. Um, of, a, of an album recording and of a good bringer show set I had at Gotham. And I said, okay, I'm going to look up every comic uh, that I like or know of, and I'm going to look for all their contact info, you know, like for bookings, for gigs, mm-hmm. contact here. So um, Dane Cook was the, was the king of comedy at that point. So he was repped by New Wave Entertainment, uh, Barry Katz being the head of that at the time. And I, I sent, you know, I sent packages to like 25 different places they contacted me, not Barry Katz, but you know, somebody who was new there Mm -hmm. and he liked my stuff. He liked my story. So uh, we started, you know, just, he started pursuing some things for me and like a couple months in, he booked me on the late, late show. And it was obviously a huge opportunity. Um, I, I don't mind saying, I think for that level that I was at, I crushed the set and then a few weeks later, and then I did a, a show on Nesson that they were producing okay. that Gary Goldman actually hosted my show. It's called Nesson Comedy All-Stars. And I'm sitting there going, okay, that's like one national credit, one regional credit. Things are popping. And right before the Nesson show, they fired my manager. Uh, and 
this made me just terrified and I made the wrong decision. I said, I'm sticking with new wave because um, my instincts told me, well, they're the big name. You know, they're like, they're obviously going to take care of me. They've obviously got the contacts and they assigned me to somebody else who I think had no interest in my comedy either. Maybe just didn't like my comedy. I don't know, but did sort of nothing really for me. And the heat of those TV appearances sort of died down a little bit as, as they will Uh, a writer's and they dumped me. They dumped me as a client right around the time when the writer's strike had hit, which was like mid Oh eight, I think early mid Oh eight. Right. So I'm writing to the booker of the Late Late Show going, hey, remember me? I crushed that set. And I really did. That's not like delusional. So I was like, I'm in, right? No, like, if I no your, do video, it again, your you... video is still online. You did crush the set. Yeah. And, and so thank you. <laughs> and I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting there going, um, hey, and, and we had had talks right before the writer's strike. Like, I was like, okay, we're, you know, in like five to six months, we'll revisit this. You know, obviously we don't just pump people up every month. Mm-hmm. And they just stopped responding to my emails once I had no manager to vouch for me. Um, And that's when we entered the dark days. No, no, that's when I just, you know, started doing road gigs and begging clubs to book me. I remember Rich Miller was booking Helium in Philly and I wanted to do Helium because I was like, it's an easy gig. It's a big club and it's in Philly. And I, <laughs> it shows you the sort of delusional optimism that has to exist in comedians. I emailed Rich Miller for at least two years, monthly, <laughs> with no response. And I was just like, well, here you go. We got to keep doing it. And then he actually responded. And I remember getting booked there in 2011 for the first time of what would be, you know, like eight or nine bookings. But it's so it, you have to have like who who emails 20 months in a row with no response and and actually is hopeful that that 20 like because i'd never had any contact from him mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden i got the get so in other words those those years from 08 to i'd say 2013 were trying to put together gigs with friends trying to do bar shows trying to uh, get road gigs at clubs that you've, you've heard of or, or you know, get in as an MC or a, or, or a feature just to keep getting work and keep getting your name out there. So. I don't know if this makes you feel any better or just makes me feel worse, but I will, I will let you know as someone who gets lots of emails, there's a lot of people I've never responded to who, sure. who keep emailing me. And maybe I should be responding to them. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's one of those things where I never, I think I started doing it almost as like, not as a joke to the other person, but to me, like, well, they haven't told me not to email. So I guess I'll keep emailing. And, and sometimes you get emails from places that are like, um, there was this one club, like a sea level club that I remember I flew out to Westminster, Colorado is wits End comedy club because they okay. were one of the places that would book me. And, you know, it was one of those things like a $400 flight to, to Denver for a $400 gig and a room. And you're going, I better hope I better sell some CDs. <laughs> uh, but you know, at that point you're just looking for who will give you more reps. How do you build a fan base? How do you just get that experience? And I remember I emailed and I worked the club twice. And then I was asking to kind of bump up to a headliner, knowing that it was a low level club um, and never got a response. And then like a year later, um, after sending like probably four emails total, mm-hmm. a guy writes back. He's like, we've closed the club. Please stop emailing me. And I was like, 
Okay, obviously I would have stopped if you told me the first time. I've worked the club. I'm not a total stranger. So it's you get all you get the whole variance, you know, people you actually know who treat you like a stranger and then strangers who go, "Hey, how are you?" Oh, you emailed me 30 times, didn't realize. So. So, uh as someone with a website, the comics comic, I was naturally drawn to your pivot back in like 2013 when you started making videos about other comedians. <laughs> well, yeah, and I know, and I know you knew that because you were like tagging me in tweets and things like that. Well, twenty, yeah, twenty thirteen was was a sort of for me that the what happened in um, I've told this story before. Uh, I guess probably just on my podcast, but um, Patrice O'Neill, like one of the one of the first almost good experiences in my career was I hosted for him at the DC Improv in 2010, right before Elephant in the Room went up. And it was just amazing. Like it was, I mean, being in that small comedy club with the low ceilings and him just crushing for like an hour at a, at a pop. I watched all five shows, him and Sebastian Maniscalco are the two guys I've hosted for down there that I watched <laughs> every set. Mm-hmm. And I got to see Sebastian, like he sold out five shows there, but but he was like, literally it was like the engines were starting on his rocket ship. So it was very cool to be, he was complaining to me in the green room. I remember not complaining like I complained, but just sort of chatting. And he was like talking about the wild, wild West tour with Vince Vaughn and how like Sullivan and sons was the show that the second tour got like with Steve Byrne and um, Roy Wood jr. And I remember him saying to me, uh, yeah, you know, we were supposed to get, they said we'd get a show and a tour. And now I'm here at the DC Improv. And I said, hey, you just sold out five shows at a pretty kick-ass club. It's going to be all right. And not that I, I was being sarcastic. It wasn't like he was moping. Right. But I didn't know how right I was. <laughs> like the dude is a is a rock star now. Like, it's it's insane. But with Patrice, I remember I, I opened for him and he was very cool. He shit on me in that very uh, accepting way, not in the I hate you, get out of my face way. And I remember him saying to me like, oh, that Rocky bit. I like that Rocky bit you do, which is an old bit of mine. And I said, oh, I didn't do it. And he said, well, I checked it. You know, when I found out who's, who's opening for me, I looked at some stuff. So that was a great compliment. And then he asked for me back to host the next time he came through, like six months later. Now, I've never asked a headliner to open for them. I feel like that's like asking to be invited to the wedding. You just, you either get the invite or you don't, you don't put yourself out there. Other comics are totally different when it comes to that. But um, that was the one time I was going to say, okay, well he asked me to come back and MC. So I was going to ask him, Hey, if Harris, his opener, Harris Stanton, who was like a friend of his and his longtime opener. So I was, I, I'm never somebody who's like, Hey, you know, Harris isn't so, no, I was just like, if he can't make a gig, would you consider maybe me giving me a shot like once in a while as a fill-in, as a relief pitcher? So I was going to ask him that, and then he had a stroke, which, which you know, ended up uh, taking his life eventually. And it wasn't that I felt like uh, – 99% of me was like, oh, that's so – that's awful. That's awful for comedy. That's awful. Like think about what he and somebody like Greg Giraldo, two of my, you know, Mount Rushmore – what they would have done in the last decade with the explosion of content and the explosion of uh, political correct. Like it, it, it's literally two of the worst people we could have lost. I, I really think in, in the whole spectrum of, of comedy and, but one percent of me was like, that was a guy who had finally shown even just a little bit 
of interest or uh, offering an opportunity in, in all the, you know, most headliners, I think, see me as this big guy with a law degree who seems to have a good act, but isn't like the mentor, the, the, the person in need of mentorship, <laughs> whether it's just physical prejudice or the mm-hmm. fact that, you know, yeah, he seems all right. He's fine. He's done. Whereas Patrice, I think, came with this. Well, yeah, but Patrice, I think, had this physical and mental stature of like, well, everybody's beneath me. I don't care how tall you are or what your act is. I am an all-time great. You ain't shit. But if I like you, maybe I can help you out. Like, you know what I mean? So it was, it was that rare opportunity. And I was really bummed for many reasons when he passed. But I'd be lying if I said one of them wasn't the chance to maybe, you know, maybe not. Maybe nothing would have come of it. But it seemed like there might have been a chance to foster some kind of relationship with somebody whose approach to comedy I obviously deeply respect. Um, so we get to 2013. And that's when I just started. Um, I was always commenting on comedy. I never felt like I had... Um, I never felt like I had a career to lose at that point. So I was like, well, I'll just share my opinions. I'm, I'm deep enough into comedy that I can speak on it. And Louis CK was somebody I kept saying, well, he's, I get that he's funny, but he's not my guy. I don't know why everybody's anointed him the undisputed champ. Like to me, I was always, I was a Geraldo, a Patrice, a Bill Burr. Bill Burr to me was like the guy. It went for, mm-hmm. for me that the torch was passed in my mind from Chris Rock to Bill Burr as far as, the guy I wanted to watch live the most. And so I would say things like that, like CK's fine. Like you like, but I'm like, I think he's, I, he's not my guy. Like I don't, I don't, I wouldn't pay 50 bucks to see him. And all my friends who were all in the, Oh my God, what a hater. You're such a hater. <laughs> I was like, why? Because I have a different opinion. Cause I'd give him a B plus instead of an A plus. I now hate him. So I said, you know what? Let's embrace this. <laughs> and let's let me apply my, stand up and my impressions and my sketch skills and make a parody of Louis CK. So that was 2013 becomes the year where I thought, well, maybe this is the year I break through, even if it's as like sort of a, an anti-comedian comedian. Um, so Louis CK tells the classics was a video that blew up for me and got me, you know, I, I had MCs coming up to me in 2018 saying like on the road saying, Oh yeah, you did the Louis CK video. I was like, Oh yeah, that's me. So, you know, I don't know, I'm talking way too long, but that was, that, that became the next move in my career where I got a a, a jolt of optimism again, where I thought maybe some things will happen. Did you decide after that first video went viral that that was going to be your, your new niche? No, I don't think so. I knew that nobody was doing it. And I felt like stand-up comedians, as much as I respect people who, who really go for it and, and respect how hard it is, um, I feel like stand-up comedians are also, there isn't a ton of, like movies, music, and television all have uh, a, a, a huge amount of criticism and critics. Like there's, there's critical industries built around those. But, but comedy, I think anybody who ever writes a bad review either they lose access or I've seen comics get bad reviews and go F this guy. And it's like, but it's so much more personal. Like if Tom Cruise gets a bad review, I'm sure he hates it, but it's not, it's, it's like it comes with the territory, but it doesn't seem to come with the territory with comedy. And I thought guys in comedy are celebrities. There is, I'm not picking on necessarily uh, um, just to use an example of somebody at a, at a, you know, who's a working comic. 
whether it be Ted Alexander or Mike Kaplan, somebody of that level, that's not a household name at all. They're good comedians. It'd be weird if I was just like, check out my viral video <laughs> mocking Mike Kaplan. That'd be weird. Um, it would look like you're just picking on somebody because most people would be like, that's funny, but who is that? And I don't mean that as, as disrespect to Mike. But when I'm doing George Lopez, Louis C.K., Sebastian Maniscalco, these are comics of a level that it's almost like celebrities. And if you look on, Dane Cook seemed to be the only guy anybody was ever okay with mocking. You know what I mean? He, got, he, was, he, he was an acknowledged celebrity. So people are like, yeah, they could be like, oh, fuck Dane Cook. Or uh, yeah, that's funny. Mad TV did a Dane Cook sketch. And I just thought, yeah, why not? You know what? Why not turn, turn the guns on comedians a little bit and be like, yeah, no, you, you have to be open to your heroes being mocked. You can't walk around saying, uh, religion's bullshit and I hate hate your politician and you're, you know, this guy's an asshole and they're fake. And then as soon as somebody mocks Louis CK, cause you see the comments on that to this day, very divisive, <laughs> like a lot of FUs. Like I was, you know what I mean? Which is to me so ironic that like you can have a comedian that's a legitimate A-list celebrity, but because he's a comedian, there's a, there's a hands off that no other celebrity gets the benefit of the doubt from. Right. I, you know, I can certainly identify as someone who, is friendly with comedians, but then also criticizes comedians publicly. I can identify with the, how weird it is, the blowback you can get at times. And also, especially we've gone through now two cycles of this uh, with the Me Too movement in 2017. And then again, this year, we've seen a new cycle of allegations coming forward against comedians. And it's, and it's so strange how... I mean, maybe strange is not the right word to describe it, but how even though comedians have solid allegations against them, there's a circling the wagons of sorts around them. And so I wonder. it It might be because I think, you know, there is something more personal about comedy. You know, you almost always see your favorite comedian in a, in what would be called a relatively intimate venue even if it's somebody who's a special event headliner, it's still a 300 seat comedy club. It's not, you know, it's not Madison square garden. It's not. So there is always, I think a little bit more of a personal connection to comedians, both comedian to comedian and fan to comedian than maybe a lot of other um, major stars have. Uh, But yeah, it's, it is, it is, it's another more um, sort of serious uh, aspect of that, which is like, Oh no, no, no. When you come for comedians, like, that we, we take that, you know, we, we become defense, we become their defense lawyers. <laughs> right. I mean, you do right now you're doing a lot of impersonations of different politicians or people in the, the Trump sphere. And you, you, right. you might not hear personally from any of those people, but right. you, you may have heard from some of the comedians that you've impersonated. Have you? Yeah. I mean, I had, I remember I like, there was a whole range in a series I did. And I remember I got the blessing of, it got me my impersonation of Adam Carolla because I, at the time I was, uh, I still respect him and appreciate what he, what he did for me in terms of giving me a, a platform and having me on his show so many times, but it's not a platform necessarily that I want to be part of anymore. It's just, it's, and, it, and it's for political reasons. I have nothing personal against the man, but it's some of his strident views have gone to a place that I'm not super comfortable with, but I'm not going to disavow him because of his political views, you know, completely. But he was a fan of the impression I did him and his show liked the impression. And that's what got me on his show. Cause it was more of a, Hey, here's a clear fan of the show 
poking fun, but in a fan making fun of, there were other impressions that were not, you know, my George Lopez impression was sort of intended to, you know, to mock George Lopez's comedy, which I wasn't a fan of. So there was a whole range. Gary Goldman gave me, you know, his personal blessing because I know him personally. So I asked him if he'd be cool with it, knowing that it'd be coming from a place of, you know, deep respect and just like, I'm making fun of you out of respect. I'm not even making fun of you. I'm just impersonating you and doing a little parody. Um, so there was a whole range in that series, but um, it's, uh, you know, I don't think I need to do that anymore. I'm not, it just doesn't interest me right now. I've thought about doing like another man of Scalco video um, in terms of him being obviously, you know, at that rock star level, but I don't know. I, right now, it'd be nice to just have comedy clubs open up and see if I can parlay uh, whatever reach I have now into, into doing what I've always wanted to do. The only reason I have podcasts, and I don't think every comic is like this, but the only reason, and this isn't to say I don't enjoy what I do now. I enjoy making videos. I enjoy doing podcasts. But the only reason I've done any of that stuff is in the hopes that something would hit, which would then allow me to be ahead headlining stand-up comedian that's it's so that's the end game for me has always been headliner maybe if i'm lucky special event headliner at comedy clubs that's that's end game for me i know that i don't think managers and agents necessarily like to hear like i'm good making three hundred and eighty thousand dollars a year and just stopping there they want to hear like what about movie tvs endorsements and i'm like yeah that's great if it comes but that's not that's just not the goal i'm not going to pass certain things up but, you know, if I'm headlining, uh, headlining a comedy club tour, I am extremely happy. <laughs> so I haven't been happy yet in my comedy career is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, even though, and even though your career is seemingly doing better than it's ever been, the fact that live comedy shows are so unorthodox, if they're happening at all, makes it kind of right. bittersweet, I guess. Oh, um, completely. Comple it's... Um, yeah, it's one of those things where I know that my material that I'm writing is working because I have done some Zoom shows and some of the stuff I've been working on, it really kills. So I'm so, like, I've been doing it long enough. That's a good thing, at least of being a sort of veteran, um, if not well known, at least I have veteran status in terms of how, long, how much time I've put in. I know... 90% of the time if something's going to work. I don't know how much it will work, but if I'm... You know what I mean? Like you, if you have so much experience on stage in front of different crowds, writing different material, you kind of know, yeah, this is a good one. You may not know if it's a great one or it might be an okay one, but usually you write a joke, you go, that's good. I can tell that's going to be a good one. So I know that stuff is working for me on Zoom shows. So I, that gives me comfort knowing I'll be ready. I'll be, I'll be ready with new stuff chambered once I can really get back on stage regularly um, but yeah, it's, it's frustrating. This, this whole experience has been very bizarre. Um, you know, but I, you know, on the whole, I have to be thankful. I mean, money wise, uh, I, fame, fame, I, fame, you understand when I say fame, I just mean notoriety. Um, all those things have been big pluses that I couldn't have expected. And, and, you know, I basically have two jobs right now when a lot of people don't have one. So I am, I, I, try to maintain that. But at the same time in my head, I'm going, God, I don't even care if it's a C room. I just want to see my head shot up there and know that I'm out there. Cause I'm so confident in that once I get the shot, 
I'm right there. I've made it to, you know, the door and the door is locked, but I'm there. I finally made it to the, you know, or if it's a mountain, I made it to the top of the mountain and like, I can't yet put the flag in or something, but it's, it's frustrating, but I, I can't be unhappy um, because I don't know how close I am to my career goals, but I've never been closer. That's, that's sort of the dilemma is like, I know that I've never been closer to getting what I want out of comedy, but that doesn't mean I'm close. <laughs> In other words, I've never been closer, but I still might have a mile to go, or I might be on the doorstep of success. I really don't know. I just know that I've definitely reached a new level wherever that level is. Well, I mean, I guess that symbolically millions and millions of Americans kind of are, might be able to identify with you because we're, we're less than four weeks away from the election and everybody feels like we're so close right. to resolution, but we don't know. <laughs> yeah, it'd be, I mean, and I, I, I think with Trump, uh, I laugh because I think, I guess the best thing he could do is if he loses, maybe he'll just go golf for six weeks. Like he might be the first president to just be like, I quit. I'm not doing the job. You fired me. So, you know, like any, the presidency is not supposed to be a, a regular job, but I feel like he may treat it like a regular job. Like, Hey, I heard I'm getting fired. Well, fuck this job. Then. <laughs> He's going to be the first president to just, you know, uh, be like the guys in office space or so, like the reverse of office space where they fire Milton, but don't tell him it's going to be the reverse. Um, <laughs> so that makes me nervous, but I think, um, yeah, it'd be, I mean, there will be a tremendous amount of optimism. I think if Biden gets in, not from everybody, but from the people I think who uh, not to insult Trump supporters, but from the people that matter, I think there'll be a lot of optimism. <laughs> now I've, I've messaged with you about this, but we haven't talked about it. So let me ask you, you still don't have a Biden that I've, I'm aware of. No, I know. And you've, you've, you have written to me about this and I thought you did have a good, good idea. Um, I try it. Basically, I can't sort of violate the way I've always done impressions because I've done a lot in my, in my career. And it really is just one of those things where I just sort of, I'll be walking around my house and I'll just kind of try it. Mm -hmm. Like not with any kind of, I'm a voice actor, look at how precise I'm being, but I'll just, uh, and, and I always end up just sounding like a, you know, an old man waking up from a nap, but not, it doesn't sound like him. And I know I don't want to put out a mediocre Biden. And the reason for that is I have enough fans who seem to like my impressions that I know some of them will go, he's got a Biden too. That's great. And I'll be like, no, please stop with the, the easy compliments because mm -hmm. I want it. You know, when, if I do an impression, I want it to be at least a really good effort if it's not perfect. And right now I just, I can keep working on it but it, it's tough. It's tough. And, and I remember thinking Obama was tough, but I had a real, I had a very good Obama sort of from mid, late 08 until like 2012. I felt like I had a, a very strong Obama. I closed a lot of sets with it. Um, the way I close with the Trump impression now, what, you know, I don't do impressions throughout the set, but it makes for a good closer. So Obama for a lot of people, early on was like, Oh, but he doesn't really say anything extreme. He doesn't have a lot of ticks. He doesn't have, but eventually you hear somebody over and over again and you get it with Biden. It feels like it might not be quite in my wheelhouse. And I do like that when people go, not you, but uh, that, well, 
go get a Biden now. And I'm like, I'm not a jukebox. Like, you know, even Dana Carvey can't just do whoever, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you do Frank Caliendo is probably, I, th- I think he's the best overall in terms of having a depth of high quality impressions. You know, he's got like 10 awesome ones, not two or three. Um, but I'm sure there's people he can't do, you know, he can try, but he, yeah. But Biden for whatever reason is, is very tricky. I wish I joke, but I wish Sherrod Brown had run for president because I have a really good Sherrod Brown and his wife retweeted it uh, during the uh, Democratic convention. She said, great impression, but you need to get crazier hair. And I go, what an endorsement. I was like, God, Sherrod, why didn't you run? Imagine I could have done a one man Trump and Sherrod Brown uh, debate. Why? Why then does nobody have a really good Biden? I think because there is something in his voice that comes with age that, that like, you know, I think if, I think there's probably, you know, there aren't a lot of undiscovered 70 year old comedians walking around. They've mm-hmm. died or quit. I think that's, you could probably find an older man who could do a good, because it just will have some of that weathered, you know, um, there's people who can do voices that sound like they smoke, but that age that he just kind of has like a, a voice that's of an old man without being a character, right. Without right. being sort of a, uh, you know, like a, like, cause that's, you're getting into like scraggly smoker territory. He right. just, it's just kind of my friend, you know, just kind of a little worn and you see it like that. But I, I know that doesn't sound like him, but that's, no, that's right. No. Cause I was getting more Clinton, more Bill right, Clinton. Right. Of that. Yeah. Um, we like, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. I think that show, like there's obviously if somebody could really crush a Biden, it is a wide open territory right now for the taking. So it kind of shows it's, it's in a difficult area. It's because Biden's a Catholic. That's right. If he were a Jew, like Bernie, everybody's got a Bernie. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, uh, I, I'm gonna, I'm not giving up on a Biden, but, and the thing is what I realize is, let's say I get a perfect Biden a year and a half from now, just hypothetically. Mm-hmm. I've already learned my lesson that better to be first and good than fifth and great. <laughs> Cause you will frame people's idea. And, and I think that's one of the good things about my Trump impression is that, you know, for most serious comedy people, there's impersonators out there, but for most serious comedy people, the standard for them was, um, and I always butcher his last name, but Anthony from the president's show. Atamanek, yeah. Atamanek. He was the, the gold standard from serious people. Like people can enjoy Baldwin, but I think that came from him being so high profile and having such great wardrobe and hair and makeup that SNL does that, you know, it kind of frames in people's mind, oh, that, that's, that's the standard. And then he wins some Emmys. And most people, the average person is just like, oh, Baldwin, amazing there's some impersonators out there that have made a living off of doing sort of good wardrobe and sort of a cartoonish version. But Anthony did as much as I think it was a little cartoonish, just if I'm being, you know, I resp- I, I liked the fact that content wise, he was not there to please everybody. It had a perspective. It had a, it had a, an agenda to it that I respected. It was, yeah, some of you may not like this because I'm going to hit this guy hard. He had good wardrobe and I think captured some of it for sure. But me coming in so late in the game with what I thought was the best one, and I still think it is, 
Um, just like I'm sure he thinks he has the best one. I don't, you know, I don't want people coming out going, he trashed. It's like, no, you, you, he would understand. Some of his fans might understand, but he, I'm sure, loves and respects his the most. But I'm coming in after all those people. So one of the things that made me feel good was I felt like a lot of people felt like I set a new standard which is hard to do because people come in with their favorite, their preferred, whatever they're primed with in their mind. Um, and, and I think the only ones I ever give a like to are when people say that me and Anthony are their two favorite. And I go, okay, I can respect that. I can respect, even if I think he's silver medal, I can respect mm-hmm. being paired with the top two. Uh, when other people say, my God, no disrespect to Baldwin, great actor. Uh, but when people go, you're just as good as Baldwin. I go, you're not getting a heart for that one. I'm not hearting that message. Well, sorry. well, Alec Baldwin is, Alec Baldwin is just reading other people's lines. Whereas the thing that you do that Anthony did before, but what you do so well is that you channel the character. Right. So, so watching one of your videos, you can just go on a riff, whether you are improvising or whether you scripted it all out, it feels like you're, channeling the inner monologue right in a way that, that and i think i think that's the key feel. i think that's the key because um and all my videos um i don't think i've written <laughs> i haven't written a script in 2020 involving trump uh it's it's all 80 to 100 percent ad-lib like if i mess up i'll remember a line and say oh that was funny let me keep that for the for the second version but I think with Trump, he doesn't want to be on script. He hates being on script. He's uncomfortable when he's on script. So I can read something as him and mock him because you feel this, like, it's like he's in an intellectual jail when he's having to read something. And being freewheeling with it, having the comfort with the character to be so freewheeling is key to making it good, if I'm trying to remember the lines or the script, I'm, I'm already sort of out of character. You know, I think that's like some actors will say, Oh, you got to know, you know, if they're using like a Meisner technique, Oh, you got to know the lines so cold that you can live those lines that you're no longer going. And then I say this, and then I say this, no, you've got to have them so that they're your own words so that you can just give the performance without, even, even having to check on what the lines are so you can you know, live in the moment as the cliche goes. And for me with Trump, it's, it's not to make it too pretentious sounding, but that's the key. He's, he's constantly in his own head, in his own moment. He, you know, scripting something is, whenever somebody writes me like a, uh, on Cameo, they'll write me like a, a script. They're like, read this. For, and I go, trust me, this will suck. I've told people, I'm like, I know you want this said, just give me the bullet points. Give me the facts you want said. I'll say them like him. Because you get a lot of people who will send you a message and they're doing that thing where they're in their mind, it's very nasty. I'm doing a bad impression. I'm per- very nasty woman. Very nasty. Totally a nasty woman. And I'm going, please stop. <laughs> like, I can't do that. I am not going to turn down money, but I will turn down your money if you insist on me doing this because it, it will be fun for no one. <laughs> well, I know, I know that uh, if the last year, heck, if even the last couple of weeks have taught us anything, it's that we can't script the way life is unfolding. And um, no. Nope. Because no one would have scripted any of, even the last 24 hours, nobody would have scripted it. 
Nobody, nobody would have. And uh, I, find, I find myself wanting to do a bad Trump impression while I'm saying that. But <laughs> I, uh, but I sincerely hope, and I don't know if this is possible, but I sincerely hope that both the election and your career have great outcomes. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I, I think what I've been working hard to do is, and I have someone who I've worked with on some political stuff trying to pitch a special for me. And it's not a Trump special, but it, it does hinge around becoming famous uh, during COVID, which few people can, you know, there are other people, obviously, but it's of, of the people who I think have blown up during this time in the comedy world. My body of work as a stand-up comedian dwarfs the, those, those other people. That's not to say that they, they're not worthwhile or that they can't produce good content. But if someone's looking to hire a stand-up comedian with a fan base, you may get some people with bigger fan bases. You, of this crop, though, you will, get, you, you will not get anybody who is, who's at my level and experience and, and volume as a, as a pure stand-up comedian. So it's sort of trying to pitch that angle. And I've been trying to, you know, every week I put at least one stand-up clip up from the last couple of years, one pitch for my other stand-up albums. And I'm just hoping of the 140,000 people following me, if I can get 10 to 20 of those, not 10 to 20,000, not I already had the 10 to 20 individuals following me for my stand-up, but I'd like to be in the thousands now. That's good. And that's, that's still a humongous, humongous uptick from where I was. And that's really my goal. Um, and you know what? I, I may start off a set if I'm headlining somewhere in 2021 with some Trump. You got, you know, you got, you got to play, you know, if you're Britney Spears, you have to play, uh, you know, oops, I did it again. And baby hit me one more time. But then you hope they'll dig the new album as well. <laughs> I don't want to have to do what she had to do on her first tour, which is play Baby Hit Me One More Time mm -hmm. to open and close the show. <laughs> well, well, J.L. Calvin, uh, based on your uh, past body of work, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, eager and anxious to see what future impersonations you do have up your sleeve. So, Yeah. I mean, there's, there all, there's always going to be one. Like the Trump just sort of happened. The Louis C.K. just sort of happened. It wasn't like, I've got this great impression. They just, the Louis C.K., I was messing around and talking. I don't even remember who I was talking to. I think I was doing a podcast with a friend and just like, you know, like I said, I just did an imitation, not know, you know, not knowing if, and they were like, that's actually pretty good. And then with Trump, it was the same thing. Like a lot of people, I'm just a little better than most, but everybody sort of, you want to do a Trump impression? You just go, hey, what do you, excuse me, people, people, excuse Everybody does that. And I just sort of did it better and then <laughs> kept working at it. <laughs> Once I realized it had some potential is when I started working at it. So there'll be others, I'm sure. I have no idea what they'll be, but yeah, I, I look forward to that journey. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, JL. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank it. you. Appreciate it. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com. For more interviews, reviews, and comedy news, become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening.
things first.